0: to share the good news with those around us. Father, there are so many people that are hurting and who have uh, such great needs that need to hear uh, the message of hope and forgiveness that only comes in Jesus Christ. And Lord, uh, we know you could use these chairs and tables to tell them, but Lord, you have, you have called us. And what a privilege it is to be messengers of hope and uh, that of the good news. So Lord, use us engineer our lives and our circumstances so that we might be laborers in your harvest field father we pray for all the activities and studies and and um, rehearsals that are going on on campus tonight we ask that your holy spirit be present in each and every one of them and lord um, we pray that uh, your body would be built up here at hunters glen and that uh, this next lord's day we would look forward to to the the message of the gospel being proclaimed and the worship that we have together, Lord, would be just uh, exciting and wonderful, and Lord, we would be uh, encouraged to invite our friends to come be with us and to share this time of worship with us. So Lord, between now and Sunday, use us, guide us. Lord, tonight, uh, we thank you for our study. Uh, Guide the pastor, speak through him, and uh, we thank you for uh, tonight. Help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, Jody. I appreciate always how he says, the pastor. Have you noticed that? For how many years did you serve with Dr. Criswell? Well, uh, about five. five years. Uh, Jody served under the leadership of Dr. W.A. Chriswell, And as everybody knows, Dr. Chriswell was always referred to as the pastor and he has just kind of kept that through the years and he has attributed that to me which i don't stand even in dr chriswell's shadow so i always appreciate how he says the pastor but i'm just a pastor not the pastor but anyway for those of you that ever wondered why jody uses that phrase it's because he served under the pastor who is now with jesus but uh anyway yeah what that's right there you go Uh, Well, tonight, I'm glad that y'all have come and I hope that you'll continue to come back as the fall schedule gets busier and busier. I know that it's kind of tough on Wednesday nights to come and and join us, but as we have been over the last few weeks surveying together questions that every Christian needs to know how to answer. And and, and actually, we could flip that around as we have said, it is also questions that non-Christians Christians ask and they go hand in hand because if a non-christian asks a question the Christian needs to be able to answer that question and so we've been kind of walking our way through these questions in no real particular order uh, but we've been walking our way through these questions last week as we talked about can we trust our Bible we went through a lot of material and I faced a lot of scrutiny from this illustrious congregation on Wednesday night because I did not give you a handout and so tonight so I don't have to face the wrath of the Wednesday night crowd I have provided for you a handout on your table and it will provide for you a good and fitting what's that we only, had one copy. only one copy well there's others These this folks up here they won't share uh, yeah Tony won't share he's 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 stingy uh, but, uh, but but we have, we have copies for you if you don't have any. And uh, what I tried to do is just to give you a summary tonight of what we're going to talk about. And so these are the bullet points. If you just read this summary, uh, then you can just read it quickly and get up and leave. You don't have to listen to me. Uh, but, uh, so, but, but tonight we're going to try to answer the question... Is the tomb really empty? Now, I've I've been to the Holy Land. Some of y'all have been there. Uh, There is a debate as to where the actual uh, crucifixion site would be between one of two places and and where the tomb would have been. And uh, uh, I I do know this, that I've been to both locations, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, and I've been to the Garden Tomb. And I can tell you without hesitancy that both of those tombs are empty. Uh, They have not found a body of Jesus and uh, they're not going to, but it doesn't keep people from asking the question, is the resurrection fact or fiction? And so we're going to walk through a a, a little presentation tonight, and try to answer that question in a little bit of a different way. Let me tell you that there is no shortage of material available, no shortage of material that you can get your hands on that will dive into this subject Uh, in tremendous depth. I can tell you that Josh McDowell has written extensively on it in his Evidence That Demands a Verdict. He has actually written a book in defense of the resurrection. If you read Lee Strobel, he has written a book called The Case for Christ. Uh, There are numerous works that are available, and most of the works that you'll read, most of the books you'll read, uh, will all basically walk through the arguments that we're going to walk through tonight. And so we're going to look tonight at a particular argument that that is based on evidence, and I'll I'll get into that in just a moment. And really, I'm indebted to Josh McDowell, who has done extensive research on this subject as we walk through this presentation tonight, uh, that you'll see. But I wanted to give you a little introduction uh, from Josh McDowell.
2: Almost every year, every person in the world thinks of one thing because it's in the news and so many churches preach it. It's called Easter. You know, Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which we call Easter. Do we really understand the full significance of the resurrection? That Christ died for our sins. This we know. And a lot of people say, well, of course he died for our sins. But do you realize? Unless he literally did rise from the dead, his promise of forgiveness and sins and eternal relationship with God is nothing but a fantasy, a false hope. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is supported by some of the most marvelous historical evidence and record. For example, both Jewish and Roman sources, totally apart from the Bible, and tradition confirms that it is a historical fact that Jesus' tomb was empty on the third day. Look, when you get your enemies to even agree with that, you're on pretty solid ground. Critics have many theories to explain away Jesus' bodily resurrection. And I can tell you this. I think I've read all the great thinkers. I read all the thinkers that think they're great. And not one of them has come close to satisfying my intellectual curiosity that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then what happened in the lives of the apostles? And how in the world could the church ever have been created? Because it was all based on one thing, an empty tomb and the appearances of Jesus of Nazareth for 40 days. As you know, the apostles said in their own words that he appeared to them for 40 days with many convincing proofs. Look, read about the evidence for the resurrection and the unshakable truth, or an even deeper analysis you can see in Sean's and my book called Evidence for the Resurrection. If Jesus' bodily hadn't been resurrected, then the religious and political leaders of the day could have quickly just totally destroyed the Christian faith, how? All they'd had to do is go get the body of Jesus and march it right down through the center of Jerusalem and all Christianity would have crumbled. But what does Christ's resurrection mean for the Christian? One, it offers us freedom from the fear of death. If Jesus is God and the resurrection happened, then he conquered death and he said, and I will pass this on to my followers. And then second, and this to me is so critical, if you really want to know what Christ did, The resurrection assures us of the forgiveness of sin. Death is unavoidable, but because of the resurrection, you and I can know that Christ has survived death, defeated it, and that we are forgiven. If he had not died for all of our sins, the grave would still have kept him uh, from being resurrected. So thank God that we can know that we are forgiven, and we can know that we have eternal life. Well, I wanted
1: you to hear just a little excerpt from Josh McDowell because I would argue that he is one of the leading experts when it comes to this uh, subject. So what we want to do is try to, uh, try to deal with a, a, a statement that C.S. Lewis made. C.S. Lewis made a statement, and many of you have heard this statement before. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance and if true of infinite importance. But one thing it cannot be is moderately important. So either Christianity is false, and if it's false, then we might as well all go and do something else with our time and our money and our gifts and our talents. Uh, it's, we're just wasting our time. If it is true, however, it should demand all of our time, and it should demand all of our talents. It should demand all of our energy. Unfortunately, the way that many people who call themselves Christians treat it is moderately important. It's just an addendum. It's a side uh, issue in their life. So we want to try to understand then the truths of our faith. That's why we've been doing this on Wednesday nights. Can we truly believe in the faith that that we profess? Somebody once said that Christianity is not a leap of faith or a leap into darkness. Based on faith, but it's a step into the light because the evidence of the Christian faith is there. And we want to walk through some of that tonight. There are some theories that have been proposed through the years. These will not be uh, unfamiliar to some of us. Maybe to others, they will be concerning the resurrection. And I'll just kind of touch on them. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them. Uh, the first theory that has been uh, proffered through the years, through the centuries, is that the body of Jesus was stolen. Um, and when the disciples went to the tomb, the reason there was no body is because the body was stolen. Now, the argument, as it is often put forward, is that the disciples stole the body. And you would say, well, how could they have done that? There was a Roman uh, guard at the tomb. There was, a, there was a, a stone, probably one and a half to two tons, rolled in front of the tomb how, how could they have uh, undetected got into the tomb and 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 passed the guards and and have taken the body because they knew the body of jesus was there they knew that the resurrection was a hoax they knew that uh, that jesus said he was going to be raised from the dead and then when he died their hopes were dashed so they had to try to continue this message and fool people and they so they stole the body so how would that have happened Um, it is often argued that they bribed the soldiers, uh, that they paid them some money and uh, were able to get them to kind of, you know, turn their head, and they were able to go and to steal the body. So we'll talk a little bit about that uh, tonight. Is there any merit to that whatsoever? Second theory is, is that uh, he swooned on the cross. That, That simply means he fainted, uh he went through some physical duress not just some but he went through a lot of physical duress and instead of dying he simply passed out because of the the duress and so they put his body in a in a cold tomb and because the tomb was cool and he was able to kind of regain some uh, some of the the energy that he lost that he uh, unwrapped himself from all the grave clothes, he laid them aside very neatly in a pile, he rolled a two-ton stone away, and he walked past Roman guards who were supposed to guard him with their life, and if they let him escape, would have been instantly killed because that's what the Romans were expected to do. They were expected to do the job. So there are those that suggest the swoon theory. Of course, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Uh, that uh, that uh, uh, how could that possibly happen another theory is that the Romans or the Jews stole the body now not the disciples but it were it was the Romans uh, or the Jewish people we're not going to get into this uh, beyond the disciples we're not going to get into this in great detail but this makes no sense w- what purpose possibly at all could they have for stealing the body uh, for hiding the body remember what Josh McDowell said uh, that given the fervor that began to come about uh not too long after the resurrection all they had to do to put the light, the, the fire out would be to pr- pr- produce a body and then lastly uh and there, there's several others of these but i'm just giving you four of the prominent ones the disciples went to the wrong tomb uh, now you know you, you could say well maybe you know it very early in the morning you know the ladies when they went to the tomb they they went uh to the wrong tomb But do you think that the others would have done the same? And and it just doesn't make any sense. But there have been theories uh, through the ages that have been raised to try to uh, explain how this resurrection occurred. Um, And in reality, if you think about it, you have to try to explain it if you don't have a worldview that believes in miracles. If your worldview is a naturalistic worldview where only things that can be explained scientifically are true and things that can't be explained scientifically or reproduced scientifically, those things aren't true. If that's your theory and that's your belief, uh, then you're going to have to try to find some type of alternative to a resurrection because we know that people don't walk out of tombs dead people don't walk again when you die you die uh, and so you're going to have to come up with some theory. So if you think, well, maybe he didn't die and he just kind of came back to life, then then you'll be in the swoon theory. If you believe that he died, but there was a reason why the disciples didn't want there to be a body produced because that was the message that they were uh, going to proclaim, then you'll uh, begin to try to find a way for them to steal the body and, and, and so on. And so you have to try to find some explanation for it because, otherwise you have to conclude the only logical conclusion that you can make and that is that he was actually raised from the dead and so there's there's a lot at stake in the resurrection battle and that's why just about every Easter you'll see some article that will come out there'll be some attack towards Christianity uh, that will be uh, th- that will be in the news it, this has been for um, 2,000 years and again there's a lot at stake here so, We want to talk a little bit about evidence. Now, when we talk about the resurrection, is there evidence? And there are two types of evidence, right? There's direct evidence, and then there's circumstantial evidence. Uh, Now, before we get into the differences between the two of those, let me just tell you that there is a branch of philosophy or a branch of apologetics defending the faith called evidentialism. Evidentialism says that if you can show proof of something, if you can give evidence of something, then you can believe in that something. And so you have to be able to show proof in some way to give a solid evidence for a particular belief that you hold. And so evidentialism says if we can find evidence, then it leads to the conclusion that the particular view, or the particular thing we believe is true. And so there are two types of evidence. There's direct evidence. Random House Dictionary of English Language says uh, that direct evidence is proof of facts offered as evidence from which other facts are to be inferred. You see the word proof. Direct evidence is proof. Uh, It deals with the fact in an issue such as the question, did Christ rise from the dead? So direct evidence is going to look for a solid proof based on facts. Let me give you you an example. There's a little uh, cartoon, right? There is a, a murder that took place. There is a witness up in the room that saw the murder take place. This would be an example of direct evidence. You saw something happen, and you can verify and testify to it because you saw it literally With your own eyes direct evidence will be based on a testimony of a witness who saw a robber in this case pull out a gun and shoot a witness Uh, it deals directly with the fact okay so uh, when we when we look at direct evidence you have to have somebody who saw something right and they have to be able to testify to it um when we talk about being Christians, by the way, we're talking about being witnesses to something. That's why the word martyr in uh, the Greek language means witness. It's somebody who has seen and experienced something for themselves. They know it to be true. Uh, they're able to give direct evidence of what they have seen and what they know and so when we talk about our faith we talk about having a relationship with Jesus and what Jesus can do because we have experienced that for ourselves we know what he can do when he lives within our heart so we're able to give evidence of that but there is also circumstantial evidence and circumstantial evidence is a little bit different for example if you look at the crime scene right there is a man seen in a store before the shooting and then later the detectives discover a sales slip showing the purchase of a gun and as they begin to look at all those facts the circumstantial evidence begins to point to this man his uh, purchase of the gun the receipt that shows that he purchased it and it begins to lead towards a conclusion. Does that make sense? You guys watch all these stupid shows on TV, right? All these crime scene shows. When we talk about, for example, uh, like a, you, you, if there's ever an accident, like an air, an, air, an air accident, and an airplane crashes, the first thing that everybody does is they jump to conclusions, don't they? The first thing and everybody says, oh, I saw a ball of fire, you know, coming out of the airplane. And, you know, and I saw this, or I saw this, or I saw this. And then you have the NTSB, they bring somebody out. It's this real, uh, you know, um, uh, uninspiring person, usually. Uh, they're, very, they're very stoic. And what do they say? We are going to perform a complete investigation and come to the conclusion. And usually it takes a year to get to the conclusion. What do they do? They begin to go back and they begin to look at all the circumstantial evidence, uh, unless there is actual direct evidence. In the case that maybe a pilot survives and there's passengers and, hey, we can tell you exactly what happened. But in the case where there's no direct evidence, there's nobody that can tell you exactly what happened, you have to go back and look at circumstantial evidence. And what do they do? They build the circumstantial evidence to where they come to a conclusion. In uh, in philosophy, we call this inductive reasoning. We go from particulars to the general. We do this in Bible study. How many of y'all do precepts? Anybody do precepts? You do this in precepts. when when you learn how to study your bible you you don't go about it deductively you don't start out by saying this is what i uh this is what the text says you go about it inductively and you say let me look at all the particulars and you look at the particulars and you bring all those particulars together y'all look bored y'all bored okay so sometimes i feel like i'm all alone up here but anyway you bring all these particulars together and from them you come up with a general conclusion deductive reasoning starts with a general conclusion and goes down to particulars okay we don't do that when it comes to an event trying to understand an event like a crime so you go in and you start doing fingerprints and you start interviewing witnesses if there are any you start looking for clues they start piecing it all together y'all watch all these shows on tv you know all this it's all inductive so now next time you watch one of these shows on tv go that's how we're supposed to study our bible We're supposed to look at verbs and nouns and context and authors and and testaments and how they all fit together. And when we get all the pieces, we come to a, a, a final conclusion. And when we do our research in the right way, the final conclusion should naturally follow the evidence that you've discovered. That's called circumstantial evidence. So here's some more, fingerprints on the gun, there's a the cash register where the, where, the, where, the, where the person that bought it was, positive ballistics report from the gun, it matches that gun, the fingerprints, and you do all that. And from that, circumstantial evidence then does not deal directly with the firing of the gun that shot the clerk but with the facts that can be used to infer that the defendant shot the clerk so again bet you didn't know you're going to get you know thank mcdowell for this but anyway a little lesson in circumstantial evidence Uh, C.T. McCormick, in a handbook uh, of law of evidence, says this. He says, A brick is not a wall, but several bricks can make a wall. Small pieces of evidence do add up to substantial proof. And so, again, what you're trying to do is you're trying to look at the pieces to get to the final conclusion. Again, it's called inductive study. So let's look at some circumstantial evidence uh, for the resurrection. And McDowell is really helpful here. So circumstantial evidence. Let's talk about, number one, the church. The church. Um, Where did the church find its origin? There's an answer on the screen for y'all, okay? (laughs) Not a trick question. (laughs) Where? In Jerusalem. When? Around... 30 A.D., right? Uh, There's some debate as to when the actual launch of the church was, but I think, you know, you could succinctly and safely say the church found its origin in Jerusalem around 30 A.D., uh, the very city where Jesus was crucified and buried. Now, why is that important when it comes to the resurrection? Well, what was the foundation of the church? Here's another question for you, okay? All right, what's the foundation of the church? was the preaching of the resurrection, right? So when you think about how the church was established and the message that the early church proclaimed, the central message, the foundational message, it was about the resurrection. I'm going to give you some examples of that in a second. We're going to look at some scriptures, but think about it this way. Remember in the book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, the Apostle Paul was writing to the Thessalonians and he said you guys have lost hope you're grieving because you have a fellow Christians in your church who have died and you're afraid that they're going to miss out on the glorious return of Christ and 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 the assembling of all the saints together even if you don't know what I'm talking about just shake your head it makes me feel better and so Paul was writing to them and he was saying listen I'm writing this to you you don't have hope but listen, you should have hope. And then he makes a statement in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. He says, if we believe that Jesus died and was raised again, even so God will bring with him those who have died in Christ. Okay, that's a paraphrase. In other words, when Paul was trying to deal with the, 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 the Thessalonian church, and this is beyond the beginning of the church. Now, the church is, 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 uh, is beginning to take shape and take form in the, these churches that are, we find in our New Testament. The argument that Paul uses to bring encouragement to them is the argument of what? The resurrection, right? Because the resurrection was the foundation of the church. Uh, J. N. D. Anderson, who was a, a missionary, he was a a, a British uh, 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 lawyer. Uh, in 1950, wrote a book uh, about the resurrection, and he concludes that the church uh, uh, that the church owed its origin to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then he says, "Is there really any other theory that fits the facts?" that the church finds its, its its origin in the resurrection. Daniel Fuller uh, from Fuller uh, Seminary out in California, to try to explain this, uh, the church without reference to the resurrection, is as hopeless as trying to explain Roman history without reference to Julius Caesar. I love that, because the resurrection is so central to the foundation of the church. So let's go through some passages quickly. You have Acts chapter 1 uh, verses 21 through 23, and we'll read these passages. And they're on the screen. Of the, uh, of the therefore men who have company, uh, uh, accompanied with, all, uh, with us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was received up from us. Of these, one must become a witness of his resurrection. Okay? Acts two twenty three and 24, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But, this is Peter's message at Pentecost, if you uh, recall chapter 2 of Acts, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all, witnesses. Again, you see the central message. Acts 3, you rejected this holy righteous one and instead demanded the release of a murderer. You killed the author of life, but God raised him to life, and we are witnesses of this fact. For you first, God raised up his servant, as is Acts 3, 26, and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Let it be known to all of you and to all people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, but whom God raised up from the dead, by this name, this uh, man stands before you in good health. Remember, this was Peter and John at the temple when they healed the, the, the lame man at the temple, and they were responding to the questions. How were you able to do this? And their response is, it's by jesus of nazareth but notice how they don't leave it there they say the one whom you crucified and the one whom god raised acts 10 we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the jews and in jerusalem they killed him by hanging him on a tree but god raised him from the dead and caused him to be seen he was not seen by all the people but by witnesses whom god had already chosen uh, by us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Again, you see the, the, the theme in, in the book of Acts as the church is beginning to take shape, this very young church, what's the theme? The theme is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So uh, again, just as a, as a way to understand the foundation of the church, which began in Jerusalem, right? What happened in Jerusalem? Crucifixion, resurrection becomes the central theme of the church's message going forward. They keep going back to that event. So you might say, well, I don't believe that that event happened, but I will tell you that the early church believed that it happened, and it formed the foundation of everything that they proclaimed. Every opportunity in the message they proclaimed was Uh, uh, taken advantage of to bring it back to the resurrection. Circumstantial evidence number two, Sunday worship, and we'll just touch on this. Um, When you think about, uh, I'll just give you a passage out of Hebrews. This is one that we, we often cite when we talk about worship. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together. Now, why did the church move worship from Saturday, Sabbath, to Sunday, the first day of the week. Why do you think that happens? Very simple answer. What happened on the first day of the week? The resurrection happened, right? Well, John 20 verse, 20, uh, John 20, verse one says on the first day of the week, when they went to the tomb, he was not there, he had been raised from the dead. Well, as the church begins, understand and come to grips with the reality of the message that jesus was telling them when he was alive it says after six days you go to the seventh day again the next week what did the church do they gathered together again by the time you get to the book of revelation in revelation chapter 1 and verse 10 john says that he was in the spirit on the lord's day the first day of the week They started calling Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. In Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 36, we read part of that. When did the Spirit of God come upon the church? On the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. You see, we're just going to touch on this, but it's important to understand the church knew that something happened on the first day of the week. It, they knew that something happened on the first day of the week that formed the foundation of their proclamation, but it also began to form the day in which they gathered for worship, okay? So d- don't think that somebody was sitting around in a, you know, a, a church business meeting and they were like, you know, we are meeting on Saturday, but I think we'd get more people if we met on Sunday. Why don't we move the day to Sunday? You know, there was a reason why they chose to start worshiping on Sunday, Because Sunday, the first day of the week, was Resurrection Sunday. So there's an event in the mind of the early church that begins to formulate not only the message they proclaim, but the practice of the early church. Um, uh, uh, Circumstantial evidence number three, baptism. Now, for those of you that were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about the the subject of baptism. Um, So you have baptism. What does baptism symbolize? Well, baptism symbolizes dying with Christ in crucifixion, and it symbolizes being raised with him in newness of life through resurrection. And if you listen, when we baptize people, we're buried with Christ in baptism, and we're raised to walk in newness of life. Again, where did that come from? Did somebody think, hey, that's super cool. Why don't we put a white robe on a pastor, you know, and, uh, and have them say cool things when they baptize people? Why, why, why is that important? Uh, Dr. J.P. Moreland, who is an apologist, um, he's at Biola, he's at Talbot School of Theology, I believe it's at Biola University out of California, and I'll, if you can get anything, your hands on anything Dr. Moreland writes, you'd be blessed, he's, he's, he's very intelligent. But he, he makes this statement, he says, the practice of baptism in the early church was probably an adaptation of proselyte baptism uh, practice in Judaism the change in meaning of the act of baptism by the church points to the resurrection as a necessary precondition for such a change in other words the early church began to baptize buried with christ raised as a beautiful picture of this truth of the resurrection you see how this begins to start to shape the early church circumstantial evidence to be sure it's not direct evidence we 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 uh, Uh, are just looking at the circumstantial evidence. And so we're able to see the message they proclaim, shaped by the resurrection. We're able to see that the day in which they meet, shaped by the day of the resurrection, and also the means in which they baptize. Uh, This continues to take shape in the New Testament epistles, Colossians 2, 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Romans 6, 3, and 5. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. For we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So again, baptism in the early church is a Is a beautiful picture of this resurrection truth. Number four, how about this? You knew this was coming, right? Communion. What is communion? Communion is the Lord's Supper. Well, when you look at the Lord's Supper, listen to how we understand what Jesus is teaching us. It says, When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. And what did he say? This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after he had eaten, saying the cup and the bread uh, symbolize uh, the death on the cross. So this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, is what Jesus said. There's symbolism there, just as there is in baptism. And so Jesus taught the disciples that. He said, you know, as often, uh, Paul went on to say later into the Corinthian church, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's what, what, death, until he comes, but also his resurrection. Because remember, the uh, ordinance of the Lord's Supper is is proclamation. So this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, the shedding of his blood for the sins of mankind. Again, Dr. J.P. Moreland says what is odd is that these early followers of Jesus didn't get together to celebrate his teachings or how wonderful he was. That's not why the church got together. They came together to have a celebration meal for one reason, to remember that Jesus had been publicly slaughtered in a grotesque and humiliating way. Think about this in modern terms. If a group of people loved John F. Kennedy, they might meet regularly to remember his confrontation with Russia, his promotion of civil rights, and his charismatic personality. But they're not going to celebrate the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald murdered him. And it's such a great point. Because we, when we get together and we celebrate somebody's life, right, what do we do? We celebrate all the things that that life mean to us. We, we don't talk about, we don't celebrate a horrible death of somebody, even a loved one that we have, do we? We don't do that. But it's interesting, isn't it? Think about it in comparison to Jesus. When the early church got together... They didn't get together. At least we have no, no uh, biblical record of that where they said, you know, boy, it was just great to hang out with him. I mean, it, it was wonderful. Now, listen, they talked about uh, the, the, the love that he had for people and, and the Bible gives us uh, stories and bi- uh, biblical narratives of how he interacted with people. But the early church, when they went to proclaim a message, okay, and the message was focal, they weren't talking about, hey, he, is a, he was a super cool guy. He, he was a lot of fun. Boy, I mean, they didn't talk about all of that. What, did they, what was the focal point of their proclamation? Burial, death, burial, resurrection, right? So, again, what understanding should we walk away with? Well, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 and 26 he says for this is what the Lord himself said and I'll pass it on to you just as I received it that the night that he was betrayed he took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is given for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant between God and you sealed by the shedding of my blood so um, again you get the picture circumstantial evidence it began to shape everything about the New Testament church Let me just step back for a moment and say parenthetically for us, and I've said this before, the longer that we are Christians, the the, the less likely we are to talk about what it felt like to be lost and how grateful we were to be redeemed. It's just an unfortunate thing. You get around new Christians, and that's a great reason why Lord, give us more people that are being saved and let us see salvations because salvations bring about incredible joy in life in a church because people who were lost and then saved understand and know what it felt like to be lost and then saved. And it's so new to them and fresh. The longer that we're Christians, the less likely we are to get excited about being Christians. It's just a fact. And that's why we grow cold and stale in our faith and we begin to take things that really don't matter but they over time begin to matter to us and we make them into like pillars of our faith preferential things and i'm not getting into all that tonight you could figure out whatever it is you want to figure out but that's what happens and we start talking about everything else and we unknowingly maybe unwittingly Begin not to talk about what is the heart of our faith, the central aspect of our faith, and that is the resurrection. That's, that, that's the shed blood of Christ on our behalf. His resurrection, the transformation that takes place in a person's heart. You, you know, remember back in the day when we used to have revivals? What was the point of the revival? The point where the revival was to remind us of what was most important to our faith and what was most important to us as Christians. So, Again, the early church, they focused on those basic truths. Hey, let's get together on the first day of the week and let's proclaim the resurrection. Let's baptize in the name of the one who was buried and raised. Let's take the Lord's Supper as a reminder that he was broken and his blood was shed, but yet we have hope because of his resurrection. All those truths began to shape the early church. You know why? Because the resurrection's a myth? <laughs> no, because they knew the resurrection truly was a reality. Here's another one, and uh, McDowell goes into great detail on this, and it's, it's really something I've never given that much thought to, but I want to kind of share it with you. The change, changed social structure. Um, if you look at uh, the Jews... For example, the Jewish people, they've survived unlike any other people uh, in history, right? They've survived through calamity, persecution, genocide. Um, Anybody familiar with history knows uh, the Jewish people have had a bullseye on them from the beginning of all creation. Uh, People groups before the Jews have gone out of existence. If you just look in the Bible, you have the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Jebusites, the Moabites, we could go on and on. There are people groups that no longer exist. Um, J.P. Moreland makes a really good argument here. Kind of follow this with me. He says, why didn't that happen to the Jews? Why, why didn't the Jews go out of existence? Because they had, uh, you know, the, the crosshairs were trained upon them. Why didn't they? Well, he, he, he gives some arguments. He says, social structures that gave them national identity were very important to them. Um And and social structures are what God taught them, okay? So you go to the Old Testament and you see God gives them laws and he gives them practices and he gives them social structures and those were very part of who the Jewish people were. Uh, Number two, Jews would pass structures down to their children, right? Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach these things diligently to your children. When your children ask you what is the meaning of the statutes, the commandments, and the judgments, send them to church and let the church teach them. No, you tell them. You tell them. So moms and dads would teach their children when you lie at night, and when you walk along the way, and when you sit down. Put them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. You know, uh, l- let them be central to who you are. And then they would celebrate them in the synagogue meetings every Sabbath. They would read uh, from the Old Testament. They would uh, celebrate those things. Um, they would. Uh, Reinforce them with rituals. Uh, you know the, the Jewish people have many feasts and um, that that are very very meaningful. Even to this day, actually, uh, the, the 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 Jewish feasts and the rituals they believed institutions were entrusted to them by God. Uh, they believed that to abandon these institutions would risk their souls being damned to hell after death. Now, again, we, we we could we could kind of poke some holes in some of all that, but for the Jewish people, their identity was wrapped up in in their structure of as God's people, right? Um, not perfect, um, but then look at the historical context. There's a rabbi named Jesus, and he appears from a lower class religion. Okay. He's not proclaiming Judaism like the Jewish people would have. And he, and he comes on the scene, and, and as quickly as he comes on the scene, he disappears. So he, he's, he's there for three years. He gathers a following of lower middle class people. Now, there's some influential people among the disciples, but mostly it was lower class people, discarded people, you know, that nobody else wanted to pay any attention to. That's why they wanted to stone, you know, the woman caught in adultery. That's why nobody wanted to be with the woman at the well. That's why they would walk by the blind Bartimaeus. You know, nobody wanted to be around them. And so what happened? He got in trouble, right? This is the gospel, right? He got in trouble. And then... He was executed with about 30,000 Jewish men in this time period. Uh, there were a lot of executions, a lot of people who uh, stepped outside of, 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 of what the social customs were. But he was executed. He was one among many, but he was executed. Five weeks after the crucifixion, okay, there are 10,000-plus Jews that are following him. And they claim he's the initiator of a new religion. All right? So you've got to put yourself in the Jewish context— this guy who flashes on the scene is now the leader of this new religion, and people are willing to give up and alter their social institutions because, uh, that they had been taught from childhood because they believe there's something about this guy that merits that kind of loyalty, right? Uh, y'all still with me? I know it's late. We're almost done. Uh, we're going to continue next week because we're not going to get through it all. But, but so, so you have you have this whole structure of Judaism that's kind of, kind of thrown into turmoil. No wonder the Jewish authorities were, all. Uh, about getting rid of him. But, now, but they couldn't get rid of him because now you've got people that are willing to abandon. And just think about it this way. One of the struggles that we have in evangelism and missions is when we go into a Muslim country or we, we go into a Hindu country and you share the gospel. For people to embrace the gospel uh, of Jesus, they have to turn to Christ. And it means turning away from what they had been taught all of their life. And that's why persecution is so uh, prevalent in, in, in many countries because the social institution of the religious uh, teaching is now being turned away from. Families think they're turning on their family heritage. It, it, you, you have to understand this. This is not right, but you could look at it this way. If it were the opposite here in America, we would all go crazy if, if you know, we're, we're a Christian nation. Why are people turning away from what we were always taught, you know? We, we still do. We go crazy over that. So why did all these people then begin to follow him? Well, Dr. Barry Leventhal of Southern Evangelical Seminary says, does the supporting evidence above point to the unique space-time resurrection of Yeshua, the Messiah? Whatever our response, it cannot be denied that the early church messianic community thought so. Many of them gave their lives rather than deny any part of it. The fact of his resurrection was the hope of their own resurrection. Jesus' impact as the resurrected Messiah seems as certain as any fact can be, right? So circumstantial evidence, how could all these people go to their death when all they had to do to spare their life was say, you know what, I'm following a lie it never really happened. We, you know, we know the body was stolen. You know, uh, We were just trying to keep it, the message going. By the way, you think about it this way. If the disciples all entered into a pact, we're going to steal his body, and we're going to hide it. Do you think you could hold that secret if that was the case? Somebody at some point would come out and say, this whole thing is blowing out of control. We can end it right now. As McDowell said, we produce a body. It's all over. It's all done. It's not. Number six, change lives. Change lives. So look, look at it before the resurrection. Th- think about the disciples before the resurrection. When Jesus was captured in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, all the disciples deserted him and fled. Right? So he, and, and what happened to Peter, peter denied him three times he followed from a distance he you know hey do you know this guy i don't know who he is i'm telling you i don't know him right after christ was crucified the fearful disciples hid themselves in an upper room and locked the doors disciples were also skeptical when they first heard about the empty tomb Uh, if you think about it you know they were like what what are you talking about remember they had to go see for themselves they they were still skeptical about it. And even on the first day when the two two disciples were walking along the road to Emmaus and Jesus came and walked with them, what does the scripture say? They were saying, Well, we were still hoping it was he that was going to redeem Israel, but after all it's the third day. And some of the women went to the tomb. They didn't there's there's tremendous skepticism in those two disciples. So even the disciples before were very skeptical. Um, one refused to believe until personally he touched Jesus' wounds. We all know that was Peter, right? No, it's Thomas. I'm just saying if you're awake. So one refused to believe till he personally touched his wounds. Okay, this is before the resurrection. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus I already said that. Okay, what about after? Changed from a group of cowardly followers into a bold band of enthusiasts. They were willing to face a life of suffering for the cause of Christ. He appeared to Cephas Peter, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Uh, something happened. How did they get this boldness? It's not a trick question. Again, it's a simple answer. What The, the resurrection happened. And if you think about it, if Jesus was crucified 30, 33, somewhere in there. Um, The book of 1 Corinthians was probably written 25 years after that fact. So when Paul writes, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, who is he talking about, most of whom remain? He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. It is entirely plausible and most likely that when Paul said that, he was basically saying, you can go and ask some firsthand witnesses that they saw him. So he was saying there's some direct evidence there. You want to go see if he's been raised? There's some people that will tell you we saw him. Uh, just as a note, there's, you have to explain that away too, right? You have to explain this away. And so how do skeptics through the centuries explain this away? They say that they ha- it was a case of mistaken identity. They just thought they saw Jesus, but it was somebody who looked like Jesus, right? Uh, then there are others who say they were hallucinating because they were so intoxicated with this message that Jesus preached that they were hallucinating and they really thought they saw him, but they didn't see him. And again, you have to try to explain that away. And then lastly, <clears throat> we have more. We'll go get into these next week talking about prophecy, but change lives. What about his family? Um, remember how Jesus' family... Uh, responded to him. Um, for, like, for example, in Mark 6-3, we read about his family. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Remember that? Um, Matthew gives us this uh, perspective on his family. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters? Are they not with us? Where did he get these mighty things? John 2, 12, and after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and and his disciples. So we we know that that, that he had extended family. Um, And they stayed there a few days for not even his brothers were believing in him, okay? So his own family was like, no, we're not buying all of this, okay? John tells us, his own family, his brothers didn't believe in him. Therefore, his his brothers said, him leave here and go into judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing so he anyway there's a map but but when his uh, brothers had gone up to the feast he himself also went up not publicly as if it were secret and when they had entered the city they went into the upper room where they were staying uh, and that is peter and john and james and andrew um, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These, with all one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. This is Acts chapter 1. Okay? This is post-resurrection. Now, his brothers are with the disciples. Okay? But remember what his brothers were saying about him post-resurrection. They didn't believe him. They're like, we, we, we don't kind of buy who you are. Uh, but what happens after that? What happens, what happens after the resurrection? Yeah, his brothers are with the rest of the disciples going, something happened here. Why would they have come and traveled all the way back to Jerusalem to gather and to, um, to congregate? Uh, we'll do one last one. i got three minutes. You guys don't care. Uh, if you do, you can just walk out. And he'll say you don't care about women. Uh, the Jewish Talmud. I'm just going to read you some, 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 uh, some statements from the Talmud. Sooner the, uh, let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. The word cannot exist without males and without females. Happy is he whose children are males, and woe to him whose children are females. Um, Josephus, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex, nor let servants be admitted to give testimony on account of the uh, ignobility of their soul, since it is probable that they may not speak truth either out of hope or gain or fear of punishment. Um, Any evidence which women gives is not valid to offer. Also, they are not valid to offer. This is equivalent to saying that the one who is rabbinically accounted a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. Okay. I'm just giving you a picture, Suetonius, um, whereas men and women had hitherto always sat together, Augustus confined women to the back rows even at gladiatorial shows. The only ones exempt from this rule being the Vestal Virgins for whom separate accommodation was provided facing the Praetor's tribunal. No women were allowed to witness the athletic contest indeed when the audience clamored at the games for a special boxing match. His appointment as chief priest, Augustus, postponed this until earlier the next morning and issued a proclamation to the effect that it was the chief priest's desire that women should not attend theater before 10 o'clock. I'm just giving you the whole perspective on, on, on women. So, uh, what happened on Resurrection Day? Who were the first eyewitnesses? <laughs> and who did the women go and tell? The other guys. And guess what? What's recorded in the New Testament? That the women's testimony is what? True contrary to everything else that was being said about women why why didn't they just go with the custom and just say "Oh, we can't believe them because they knew that it was true so again circumstantial left next week we're going to talk about prophecy all right let's pray and then we'll uh, we'll we'll have a good night together now that we're, now that i'm done father Thank you so much for our time together. I pray that you help sharpen our minds, help us to understand the truth that we're learning, help us to defend the faith. Not so that we have to defend Scripture, Lord. We know that Scripture will stand. Your word is true, it is secure in the heavens. But, Lord, help us know how to respond to questions with meekness and gentleness, but yet with.